As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job. If you don't know how to get to Job, an easy way to get there would be to turn in your Bibles. You'll probably land there in the middle in the book of Psalms. And if you had one book to the left, the book of Job is where we have been studying for the last few months. And we find ourselves tonight in chapter 38. And it's the first of God's two-part word from the whirlwind that we want to look at tonight. So it'll take us all the way through verse 5 of chapter 40, and what I want to do to get us started is just read the 41 verses of chapter 38. And if you were with us this morning when we talked about the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ speaking from heaven to Saul on the road to Damascus, I made a point of wanting to know something about the tone. What was it that marked Jesus' tone when he spoke to Saul, but we don't have to wonder too much about God's word from the whirlwind, because it's going to be quite clear, I trust, that this is no whisper from the whirlwind. He means to confront Job directly and forcefully. So let me read chapter 38 for us, and then pray, and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you out of the same whirlwind. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you and have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the day, number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle in war? Now what is the way to the place where light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has a cleft, a channel, and the torrents of rain a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land where there is no man, on a desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass as the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew, from whose womb did the ice come forth 
and who has given birth to the frost of heaven. The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth Mazaroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the thick clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you have spoken to us in these last days by your son Jesus Christ. And so we do pray this night that you would speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I used to serve at a church where the senior pastor loved to hunt. And part of his hobby of hunting meant he had numerous hunting dogs. And I remember visiting him for the first time when he came to the church and he had two hunting dogs in the backyard. One was old and one was young. And he began to tell me about the differences between uh, these hunting dogs. And one of the principal differences that I remember is that the old one, perhaps because it was old, was quite well trained. And, and the young one was all about the backyard at all times. And he told me that he was in the midst of the hard work of training that young young hunting dog to submit to him who was the dog's master and I, I asked him well do you have any you know tricks and tips for getting a dog to uh, submit and he said well what I've always done with my hunting dogs I guess he had done this for years and years and years at this point is when they're young and when they come to me we get into a wrestling match and then when the dog has uttered this loud distinct resigned sigh I know that the dog will fully and finally submit to me. And I don't know if that's actually normal ways in which people train dogs to submit, but nevertheless, it was his way of training his dogs to submit. And the reason I tell you that is because we come to this word of God, Yahweh from the whirlwind. And what he's summoning Job to, if you had eyes to see at the beginning of chapter 38, is a wrestling match. When he says, dress for action like a man, the original Hebrew is, gird up your loins. So kids, if you can think about that ancient Near Eastern context, men wearing long tunics, uh, this language of gird up your loins would be like basically pull up the tunic into your belt to give yourself this agility, this quickness and speed with your legs that you might be ready at a moment's notice either to run or, more appropriate to this passage, get down and wrestle. And what Job is now facing is the very thing that he has asked for for many chapters. That he would get a chance to talk to God. 
And so if you haven't been with us through the previous 37 chapters or so of Job, let's bring you up to speed quite quickly. Many of you probably know that Job in the span of two chapters, the first two chapters of this book, he lost everything. He was the greatest man in all the ancient Near East. There was no one like him under heaven. And then in a moment's notice, frankly, in a horrible day, and then another horrible day, he lost all of his health, he lost all of his wealth, everything just disappeared from his sight. He lay in the ashes for a week, quiet, and he uttered a lament in chapter 3, and that lament, seven days after, he was full of silence, brought forth this cycle of conversations with his friends. And for the last few months, from chapter 4, really through chapter 37, we've noticed these conversations, these back and forth, these counseling sessions, we've said, between Job and his counselor, friends. And at the core of Job's response, we need to remember, especially as it comes to this text tonight, that the core of Job's response has not been, Lord, I want to know why. Lord, tell me the purpose for all of this calamity and tragedy. If you've been with us and have had eyes to see, you know that the the core of Job's argument is, Lord, vindicate me. All of my counselors and all my friends say, Job, you deserve this. Their retribution ethic, what we've called their safe counseling system, is bad things happen to bad people. And Job all along has said, I haven't done anything to deserve this. In fact, you know as well as I do, Many good things happen to bad people. And many bad things happen to good people. That God's sovereignty is not as safe and as predictable as you make it out to be. So all along, what he's been longing for, what he's been asking for, is a chance to plead his case with God. That God might vindicate him before his friends. And if you glance back to where we left off with Job's words in chapter 31, before Elihu shows up and appropriately says a number of things along the way that we studied last week. If you look at chapter 31, verse 35, this gives you a sense of where Job was at this moment. He cried out at the end of his discourse, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And wise readers of Scripture rightly say, Be careful what you ask for. Because God shows up in a whirlwind, and it's God showing up in a whirlwind in a way that's completely against Job's expectation. Because you might think that by this point in the story, what God's going to show up and do is give Job an explanation. He doesn't do that. You you might think that he's going to show up and give Job that long-for vindication and justification. Well, he doesn't do that either. What God shows up and does is give Job a heart-searching, soul-arresting interrogation. My kids, you might have noticed as I was reading just chapter 38, it's almost every single word from the Lord is just a question to Job. I mean, it depends on how you count it up and break it up, but it seems like there's about 43 questions that God gives to Job in the two chapters before us tonight. Uh, You can almost break it down into 17 subsections that God is doing this divine interrogation of Job that's little more than Why do you get to demand an answer from me? Or perhaps said differently, why do you think I've done anything wrong? Because what Job has said in a variety of different ways to this point is because he can't comprehend what's going on in his life with his own suffering is I'm trying to piece these things together, Job is saying, and the only thing that makes sense to me 
is that God is not making sense. Disorder is coming from the order. He's bringing darkness from the light. And God shows up tonight and says, not so fast, Job. And so we want to see something about God's sovereignty in this passage tonight. And Lord willing, we'll get to see more of it even next week in chapters 40 through 42. And students, just make sure that you understand when we speak about sovereignty. We're speaking about one of the sweetest, most foundational truths that can belong to any Christian believer. It's that great truth that God not only rules over everything and everyone, that God controls everything and everyone. And that sovereign control is going to show up before Job's hearing tonight in a way that perhaps might have been surprising to him. So we want to see something about God's sovereignty tonight. And by the end, see how it's God's sovereignty, which is that bedrock foundation for sufferers. Well, simply, then the theme is tonight, in the midst of your suffering, trust that God is sovereign. In the midst of your suffering, trust that God is sovereign. We'll first see something about his mystery in chapter 38. And then we'll see something about his majesty in chapter 39, before thinking briefly about his mercy in the first few verses of chapter 40. So look again at what we're told, verse 2 of chapter 38, as we behold the Lord's mystery. He says to Job, this first question out of the whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And so what you then begin to see, if you notice along the way, as I was reading the chapter, how much of the questions that then come to Job in chapter 38 are about whether or not Job knows something related to God's creation of all things. So perhaps you can skip down to verse 21. You know, when speaking about the way to the dwelling of light, he says, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. But the point is, Job doesn't know. He's wanting to show right from the outset the limitation of Job's Knowledge. So he asks in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measure? Verse 5, Surely you know. Because Job has acted almost in a variety of different ways as if he knows everything going on with his own situation of suffering. Now, we're sure enough that Job is understanding that there are things beyond his Ability to fully comprehend in the midst of it. But as he's been interacting back and forth with Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad along the way, these counselor friends, he's often been speaking for God, and not all of Job's articulations about God have fully made sense in the light of who God is. And so what you want to see in chapter 38 is simply what God does in all of these questions related to his mystery is say that he is sovereign over the inanimate world. And then in chapter 39, he's going to say he's sovereign over the animate world. So inanimate world, kids, being that which doesn't breathe. And chapter 39, he's sovereign over all these things that do breathe. But I want you to notice principally what he says beginning in verse 8. He asks Job, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it bursts out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Who treats the sea like a baby infant, Job? Now, the ancient Near Eastern world 
understood sea to be a good place or bad place? Bad place. Sea was the place of evil. Sea was the place of, of chaos. Well, skip down to what we're told in the following verses in verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Job, do you know what's going on with the sea? Clearly by implication, no. But not just the sea. What he's saying here at this beginning part of chapter 38, do you know what's going on with the darkness? What was the other major metaphor? For evil, for chaos, for that which is bad in the ancient Near Eastern world? Darkness. And so what God has done in the span of a few brief questions, he said, you think that I don't know and control and rule over that which is evil? Job, I rule over all of it. Everything that has happened to you that you think is wrong, unfair, and unjust. No, it's true. I have ruled over every second of your life to this point. Declare if you have comprehended all this. And, of course, the implication, the only natural application and answer from Job would be, no, I don't know that. Uh, There is a limit, isn't there, to human knowledge. There's a limit to human understanding. So then if you just glance through verse 22 and following, he begins to give his attention to this inanimate world. You see, he speaks about the snow. He speaks about the ice. He speaks about the thunder. He speaks about these constellations and stars in the galaxy. But kids, if you skip down to verse 35, if you want a sense of the fullness of God's sovereign power, you see he asks in verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. That was a few weeks back, it feels like, perhaps a few months ago that we had what seemed to be, at least where we live, this unusually bright and long and constant lightning storm to such a degree that at one point Emily just walked out to the front yard just to take in all the lightning that was falling along the way. And if your kids are anything like my little kids, some find the lightning attractive and others find the lightning quite terrifying along the way. But if you get the sense of what God is saying here, it's not just God in his sovereignty numbers all the lightning bolts. It's like they're his army troops that show up before his heavenly council room and saying, lightning bolt reporting for duty. Where do you want me to go today? That which tends to scare, that which tends to frighten, God controls all of it. And so he asks again, speaking about Man's limitation, verse 36, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind. Job, you do not know as much as you think you do. Job, you do not understand as much as you think you understand. And perhaps it's a sobering and humbling word for many of you in the midst of perhaps suffering that you're in even this night. Because whenever God's people fall into a season of suffering, there can be this temptation, there can be this even honest and earnest desire, an understandable desire to begin to explain everything going on before your very perspective and on the horizon of your experience. But what Job is showing us is sometimes the best things that we can do in the midst of suffering that is unexplainable is act as though it is unexplainable to us 
and trust that God in his sovereign mystery is ruling over the situation. So chapter 39 is telling Job and us to behold God's mystery. I'm sorry, that's chapter 38, 39, is behold God's majesty. And it really begins actually in verse 39 of chapter 38, as the Lord moves his attention from the inanimate world to the animate world. A few brothers that I used to live with years ago, uh, we could be found one particular month of one particular year scattered on this couch where uh, we were living and we had DVR'd. We had recorded this new show that was uh, premiering that uh, certainly had caused a stir of sorts in our little community, and it was put together by the BBC, and it was broadcast, at least in America, if I remember correctly, on the Discovery Channel. Some of you may have seen this, and it was Planet Earth. And it wasn't a terribly revolutionary show, was it? It's just trying to show, with incredibly high-definition cameras, the fullness of what happens in God's created world. Just have people out there with these incredible cameras and these incredible habitats, and just get them to record what these crazy animals are doing. And just sit back, watch, and be amazed. And if you've ever seen that show or something like it, perhaps you're, you're like me and you can't help but just be amazed at what God has put together in the animal kingdom. So you see what God begins to do with Job. If chapter 38 is in some ways God taking Job by the hand with sovereign prerogative and initiative, he's saying, Job, let me take you to my planetarium. Now in chapter 39, Job... Let me take you to my zoo, is what he says, children. You'll see verse 39. He begins to call out these various animals, their distinct features of his creative power. Again, trying to put Job in his place. Verse 1 of chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the doves? Skip down to verse 5. Who is that the wild donkey Go free. Skip down to verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Verse 13 and following. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumage of love. Verse 19. We can follow this one. Perhaps this one strikes home in the world of Texas with horses. Do you give horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. Have you ever seen these old, perhaps movies, reenactments along the way? And they show just the fearlessness that belongs to a horse. A cavalry that's just going down a mountain, right into all the weapons, and a horse utterly fearless. And God says, I created that. Look at verse 22. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn his back from the sword. Verse 26 refers to the hawk. Verse 27 refers to the eagle. God says, look out on the world, Job. All of these amazing creatures, some of whom aren't even probably in Job's natural habitat at the time. But look out upon all of these creatures, and you tell me what you have done in any of them, or for any of them, to any of them. Job, behold my sovereign majesty. It was said of 
Martin Luther when he was debating this man named Erasmus in the early 16th century. Erasmus was this Renaissance scholar, uh, one of the best New Testament scholars at the time, Catholic theologian, and he and Luther, some of you might know, had this, this great tussle, this great debate over free will. And at one point, in Luther's writing back against Erasmus, he says something to the effect of, here is the problem with Erasmus's reasoning. He refuses to let God be God. God is speaking out of the whirlwind, saying, Job, let me be who I am. The sovereign one who is in charge of your very life. I want you to see now here in this third and final section, the first five verses of chapter 40, not just something about God's mystery and majesty, but his mercy. But you'll see in verse 2, it may not sound terribly merciful, this final word to Job in the first section of God's whirlwind word. He says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So here's the point. Job, you've asked for a word with God. You've asked for a chance to plead your case. You've asked for a chance to prove that you haven't deserved anything that's come to you. Job, what do you have to say now? And can you imagine being in such a situation, out of the whirlwind? Job, look up. Job, look down. Look right. Look left. Look there. Look here. All mine. Now you want to say, That's the tone of the passage. And Job, to his credit, you see, he realizes he doesn't have anything to say. Verse 4, he answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer. Twice, I will proceed no further. The kids, students, you might say, Job is saying with utter humility and reverence, Lord, I have nothing. Because of course, Job has nothing to say to God. Who is man to talk back to God, who sovereignly rules over all things? So what then are we to make of this first part of God's encounter, frankly, his wrestling confrontation with Job? For sufferers like you and I, as we talked about even this morning, the call of Jesus Christ is one that is a call so often, isn't it, to to suffering. And you find yourself in such a season of difficulty, a season of hardship and affliction. What should the reality of God's sovereignty mean for your suffering? I want to just mention two things as we begin to close. The first of which... What you certainly see from verse 4 and 5 of chapter 40 is you must submit to God's sovereignty. Because what God has essentially done in this first part of the whirlwind, Job, I gave Satan license. Job doesn't know this, of course, but we know this from chapters 1 and 2. Job, I gave Satan license to kill all of your children. I gave Satan license to take all of your wealth. I gave Satan license to put you on the brink of death. And not one of those things was wrong for me to do. In fact, it was utterly right for me to take everything from you. And Job, seemingly in his understanding, 
uh, believes that this is quite true because he's submitting to God's sovereignty. In the moment, uh, some of you parents may have perhaps been speaking with a child or perhaps your, your teenage son or daughter and they've said something so crazy that you respond with this language of, I will not even dignify that with an answer. Uh, but you see, God dignifies Job, doesn't he? Uh, with an answer that he doesn't have to come down and ask Job all of these questions. He doesn't have to invite Job into the wrestling match for Job to understand exactly who he is before God in his sovereignty, but God in his mercy, he comes in this loud whirlwind to, to bring Job to the place where he must be, which is submitting to God's sovereignty in his life. But let me add a second and final thing as it relates to the reality of God's sovereignty in your suffering. It's, it's not only that God calls his people to, to submit to his sovereignty, but we can say, can't we, to savor his sovereignty. It's not only, yes, you must always submit to God's sovereignty in your life. Well, you must do that. But the true path of righteousness and humility that Job's going to show forth in the remainder of this book is one of savoring it, trusting that, guess what? It really is the best thing for me, that God has taken everything. When someone comes along in your life, a precious loved one, and you find out there's a diagnosis that means they're probably going to be gone in the next six months, will you submit to God's sovereignty? Will you savor his sovereignty in that moment? When a spouse comes home and says, that's it, I can't do it anymore, I'm leaving, will you submit and savor? When a child in years to come leaves the home, becomes independent, renounces their faith, and brings all kinds of spiritual turmoil in your heart, will you submit and savor? Will you recognize that actually in the reality of God's kindness when you've come to Jesus Christ in faith, people like you and I, people like Job, who have limits to wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, now by virtue of union with Jesus Christ, we're united to the one in whom all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. The one whose very life, work, and ministry proves to us that everything that seems to be bad is something God is working out for the good of his people. So therefore, it's a world from whirlwind. It's a word of, of sovereignty, one to which you must submit. But don't leave it just there. Submit to God's sovereignty and savor it, that this is what he has decreed for your good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you continue to speak to us words that not only comfort, but words that confront. And so give us a heart of humility before you, of reverence in light of who you are, that we might cling to you evermore with faith, hope, and love, knowing that you are working all things together for our good, that what others mean for evil, you mean for blessing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we sing our hymn of response tonight, printed there on page three of your bulletin. Surely appropriate to what we have just seen as we sing Behold Our God together.